This is from Romans 9. Sorry, Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 9 through 18. This morning we're continuing the service on the Beatitudes, and don't worry, I'm not preaching. I just sing. <laughs> uh, but this morning we do have a special guest. Uh, Beth, the great thing about being a part of Bethany, not just Bethany North, but uh, all six locations, is that we get to reap the benefits of some great teachers across all the locations. And I'm going to introduce you to Jonathan Wells. Welch. Welch. Like the grape juice. <laughs> I'll just introduce you to Jonathan Welch later. I think he sings too. Jeremy Welch. Anyways, Jonathan Welch. Uh, he's, got, he's our pastoral resident, uh, mostly at, at Green Lake. Um, he works with what, college? College. college age, all our groups. Small groups, yeah. Faith and work, if you've heard of that. All right, I'll get off the stage so you can get started. You know, invite, welcome, and, uh, Jonathan Welch. Awesome. Thanks, guys. It is great to be here today. So as Brian was saying, I'm a pastoral resident at Bethany. So every now and then they let me outside of the walls of Green Lake and I get to go on like a field trip and a vacation. So this is really fun to be here this morning and see Bethany in a different context and completely different location. One of the things that Brian didn't say is that I am a native Southern Californian. So I have been in Seattle for about five and a half months or so as of today. California, California indeed. I'm a native Orange County kid. And so one of the things I've learned while being up here the past several months is that I put the in front of freeways. So it's the 5, the 405, and in Southern California, you take the 5 to the 22 to the 57 to the 405 to the 710 to the 605. Up here, people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that. So I'm on a crusade, probably a bad term, but I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm on a goal to convert the rest of the world because it's literally, I found out, only Southern California that puts the in front of freeways. Northern California, if you're from Northern California, they don't do it. So it's just one of the things I've learned being up here and being out of my own context. If you don't mind, let's uh, pray real quick and we will get started. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to gather here today. We are grateful to be able to hear from your word and to respond to it. I ask that you speak through me and speak to Bethany North today. In your name we pray, amen. So as Brian mentioned a little bit, we are currently in a series as a church, as a community, on the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, we are in the Beatitudes. So we have called this, I don't think there's a slide behind, but we've called this sermon series, Can You See It? Building a Common Vision for the Kingdom of God. This is today I get the honor, I get the privilege, and I get the joy to take us one step farther inside the Beatitude and share with us Matthew 5.9. So Matthew 5.9 is this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. When you think of a peacemaker, what comes to mind? When you think of a peacemaker, what do you envision? When you think of a peacemaker, what stories do you think of? 
Maybe you think of lawyers who are working on defending the innocent, or maybe even a podcast like Serial. Maybe for some of you in this room, you think of legendary figures like Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks. Maybe still for others of you, you picture a missionary who goes overseas to share the gospel with a group of people who have never heard it before. Maybe still, for some of you, you picture politicians who are working on enacting legislation to protect innocent lives. And yet still maybe for some of you here today, when you think of a peacemaker, it is someone who stands up for the rights of the unborn, the marginalized, the refugee, the other. For me, when I think of what a peacemaker is, there is one image that comes to mind, and it is my father. I don't bring up my father because he's a great, excellent man, even though I think he is. For the reason why I think of my father is because for 30-plus years, he walked the streets of Southern California, put on a badge, put on a uniform, and wore a bulletproof vest. By title, by definition, by employment history, my father was a peacemaker. And I know just the thought of bringing up a police officer could be testy in today's culture. And I know there could be some of you in this room who even have had negative experiences with police officers. I also know there's some of you in this room who could be law enforcement yourself or have law enforcement in your family like me. And so you come to the conversation with an idea already of what peacemaking looks like. So I just ask that you don't lose me with this idea of what a peacemaker is. I want to bring up my father and a particular story from my father, because I think it sheds light on us, on what we typically think of a classical definition of what a peacemaker is and does. My dad has a story he loves to tell me, and he has a lot of stories he loves to tell, because he's a father, and that's what they do. But the story that he loves to tell me involves his years working at a jail. And he had an office back in the far recess of the jail, and one day, he started hearing a loud noise and a loud commotion from the other officers in the hallway. And the noise just kept growing and growing and growing, becoming louder and louder. He had no idea what was going on outside his office, but he knew whatever was going on was not good and it was heading towards him. And so he was trying to get his mind around what exactly was happening. He heard the officer's feet shuffling across the concrete floors, and he heard that reverbing back to him. He also heard the handcuffs clink and clacking as it got closer and closer. And meanwhile, the noise, the tension is growing. Finally, the officers step into his office, and they have the new inmate. And, and head to toe, he's wearing clerical garb. And so standing before my father is a minister. And my father immediately started to feel his anger and his tension rise. He wanted to, he wanted to lash out because his job was to assign people to community service. And so he thought this minister was here that day to try and get special favor, to try and earn community service. So my father, despite his anger, holds on to everything that is going on inside of him. He goes about his job. He does his job. And at the end of it, he does discover that this minister qualifies for community service. But before he gets there and lets the, lets the minister go, he tells him something. He just tells him, whatever you do. Don't wear this to community service. It's not going to do you any favors. It's not going to do us as a church and us as Christians any favors. If you show up in your clerical, carb, clerical garb again, all you did today was bring up conflict and tension. And that's when the minister tells him, actually, it wasn't my idea to wear this. My boss, the archbishop of the Anglican church, is the one who had me wear this because he wanted to humble me and have me walk in humility as I walk into this place for screwing up and not living the way I should. So the minister thanks my dad, and he exits. My dad thinks this is going to be the end of the story. 
He doesn't think he's ever going to hear from this guy again. He assumes the story is over. Until one day, his captain comes to him, and he hands him this letter. And in this letter, my dad is told this. We wish to commend the above-mentioned Officer Welch, who has recently displayed that rare ability of those in positions of power to temper justice with mercy. He is, in our opinion, a credit to his uniform, and we pray that like-minded men and women of his caliber fill positions in law enforcement and government in general. Sincerely, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of America. And this story to me brings up the idea that my dad was able to walk into a complicated and difficult situation, and in the middle of the conflict, he was able to find a way to bring peace. And I think this is just one possible way that we get to envision and think about being a peacemaker. Peacemakers are here to bring peace to complicated and difficult situations. And I'm sure right now you can think to yourself that there are lots of complicated and difficult situations around you that are in need of peace. And before we dive fully into this idea of peacemaking, we need to understand that peacemaking is not simply about being tolerant or nice to other people, though that is a part of it. As a peacemaker, we want to stand on differing sides or in between differing, stance, differing sides of conflict, in between the tension of warring parties, between people who disagree with each other, and find a way to mend the gap and bring peace. As a peacemaker, we get to actively take steps into complicated and difficult situations like my father and the minister to get involved, see reconciliation happen, and ultimately peace reign by partnering with Jesus in the peace he brings today in our lives and our world. And so today, as we think about this idea of peacemaking, we are going to take a walk down three avenues to be a peacemaker inside our own neighborhood, your neighborhood. The first one we're going to look at is cultural peacemaking. The second avenue we're going to look at is relational peacemaking. And the third avenue we're going to look at is personal peacemaking. So avenue one, learning to be a cultural peacemaker in your neighborhood, in our neighborhood. Historically, as we think of peacemaking from a Christian perspective, there are two varying stances on war and bringing about peace in the world. If you've heard of them, they are the idea of just war and pacifism. And ultimately, I don't think that we as a society, as a person, fall into either one of these two camps fully. We live somewhere outside of it, seeing both of them living in the tension. That's at least definitely what I do. But for centuries, the church and theologians have been trying to figure out how do we live out the idea of blessed are the peacemakers. There's been debates that have stemmed to just war and pacifism and everything else that you can think of. But I, as I think about church history, there is one story one person in particular that I'm drawn to. And that person is Emperor Constantine. Perhaps you've heard of Emperor Constantine. If not, Emperor Constantine is the man who is credited with making Christianity the official religion of Rome. So in about the, sometime in the 300s, he legalizes Christianity after he converts to Christianity. And after he converts to Christianity, legend has it that he put the cross on the shields of all, his sword, or of all his soldiers, so the last thing they would see in battle if they died was the cross. At the same time, Emperor Constantine had all his soldiers get baptized. And while he had every one of his soldiers get baptized, he did not have every body part of his soldiers get baptized. He had them unsheath their swords, go under the water with their sword arm and their sword not exposed to the water. Emperor Constantine was trying to figure out how to live in this balance of blessed are the peacemakers. 
we as a church today get to live in the same tension, in this same question, in our own cultural settings to figure out how do we best live out. Blessed are the peacemakers. Today, 13.7 miles away from us here is Bangor Military Base, which has the largest active concentration of nuclear bombs. I don't bring this up as a stance or to take an opinion one way or the other. I bring this up simply because I want us to understand that the current cultural context we live in is just as complicated, is just as difficult as any point in church history, including the time of Emperor Constantine. How are we, as a church, supposed to live out blessed are the peacemakers? How are we supposed to live it out in light of knowing what is so close to us, what is right next door to us? This is our culture. This is the historical time and place that we find ourselves in as Seattleites and as neighbors. And Jesus, as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, as he's giving the Beatitudes, he's saying it to a particular time, place, people, and culture as well. He was saying it to the first century Jews, who in their time were getting oppressed and occupied by Rome. They were living in the midst of revolutionary violence, and they were trying to figure out how to live in a time of turmoil and upheaval how to live in a time of complicated and difficult interactions with their oppressors. And around the time that the Gospel of Matthew was written, which is when we, where we find the Sermon on the Mount, where we find the Beatitudes, there was a war between the A.D. of 66 and 73 or so. And in that war, the temple that existed in the time of Jesus was completely destroyed. This is the setting that we find our Sermon on the Mount. And as we look back at the Sermon on the Mount and when it was, when it was given... In attendance, there were at least two types of people. And the first type of people are zealots. Zealots were passionate and wanted revolution. Zealots were Jews who thought that the best way to bring peace was by opposing Rome, was by responding to violence with violence. And so they thought peace could only be found through the sword. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, we have a group of people who are completely, completely different. And they are the appeasers. They were people like Matthew the tax collector, who we would meet a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, who thought the best way to bring peace was by working for and with Rome. For them, peace was only found in serving and pleasing Rome. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes come to this particular people in this particular time and place. They also came at a time when the people of Israel, our first followers of Jesus, We're trying to figure out how to live out the messianic expectation of Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. Which, in those verses, we see that the Messiah would come in peace, he would end warfare, and not just proclaim peace all through the land, but that peace would ultimately be accomplished. And I wonder, don't we live in the same socio-political setting as the Sermon on the Mount? Don't we happen to live in just as divided a state as the first century Israelites and followers of Jesus found themselves in? Don't we find and see very different ways to live out peace in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our community, and maybe even our own church? Don't we live in the same uneasy, turbulent, difficult, questioning time that Jesus gave the Beatitudes? Sure, our context may be different, but the questions, fears, concerns, and realities, I think, are absolutely the same. As we learn to be peacemakers, walking down avenue number one, learning to be a cultural peacemaker in our neighborhood, I'm drawn back to the scripture reading that Brian read for us today in Romans 12. 
And I think this scripture reading will also help enlighten us as we take a walk down the other avenues as well. So we see in Romans 12 that we're supposed to hate what is evil, cling to what is good, practice hospitality, live in harmony with one another, not to repay evil for evil, overcome evil with good, give food and drink to your enemy. And in verse 18, the kicker, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, on me, on us as a church, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. Are you even living at peace with anyone? Are we living at peace with everyone? As a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, we need to love peace. We need to love peace so much that we pursue it in all areas, in all avenues of our life. And the opportunities, frankly, that are presented to us today in our culture in King County are endless. But what are you actually going to do with them? And on Avenue 2, we are going to learn what it means to be a relational peacemaker in our neighborhood. And as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes with blessed are the peacemakers, he will dive into this a little bit more if we fast forward into the story of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to flip open your Bible to Matthew 5, chapter 43, we will read from there real quick. So Matthew 5, 43 says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, do not even non-Christians, non-followers of Jesus do that. Are there people in your life that it's just really, really hard for you to love and pray for? Are there people in your life that you just don't get along with? Are there people in your life who just rub you the wrong way? As learning to become a relational peacemaker, it begins there with those people, the ones that we have shattered and painful relationships with. And so what are these shattered and painful relationships for you? If you get to know me, you'll find out that I have an amazing, wonderful, amazing older sister. I also have two wonderful parents who are fantastic. But I have a second sibling, an older brother, that I don't ever talk about. And the reason why I never talk about my older brother is because for me, the idea of being a peacemaker, I don't want it to apply to him. Our relationship is filled with strife and conflict, and it always has been that way ever since I've been an adult. And so when I think of the most tangible place where I need to think about living out being a relational peacemaker, I think of my brother. And so I went home for the first time to Southern California for Christmas, and I wanted something to be different. I wanted something to change. I honestly didn't quite know how to go about it, but I knew that whatever I was about ready to walk into for the time I was down for Christmas was probably going to be painful and difficult and filled with conflict when it came to interacting with my brother. So I started thinking through the idea of what exactly peace with my brother would look like. And I started thinking that I believe that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And since I know he endured my sin, he became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for my sins to bring me peace, that this then is the foundation for the grace I receive hourly. And so if Jesus could do that for me, then I think while I was down in Southern California, 
I could try and figure out how to live this out when it came into the context of my brother. Because Jesus already made peace for me. And as I was down in Southern California, I had one lesson, one thing that I learned from the interactions with my brother. And it's simply, we make peace one conversation at a time. We make peace one conversation at a time. I wish I could have solved everything in one trip, in one conversation, but that's not the way it works. We make peace one conversation at a time. So where does this hit home for you? Maybe you have a neighbor who you just can't stand because their dogs are constantly barking. Or, on the other side of that, they let their dogs out all the time and they don't pick up after their dog on your lawn. Maybe you have a neighbor who put up that one political candidate sign, the one that you can't stand, the one that you don't like, no matter what. Maybe you have a family member who just drives you nuts. Maybe you're here today and you're with your spouse and you're wondering why you married your spouse in the first place or why you're still together. Maybe still you have a boss who keeps giving you their work or impossible deadlines to meet. Or maybe it's that coworker. You know the coworker I'm talking about, the one who cooks fish in the office or the one who constantly tries to sell you their kids' fundraisers. That coworker. Where does it hit home for you? We make peace one conversation at a time. And I think, honestly, it has to start in these relationships that are shattered and painful and broken. And as we walk through a world in need of peace, it can be so overwhelming to think about how you can actually bring peace to a hurting, divided, complicated world. So what if you, what if I, what if we started somewhere tangible, somewhere right next door to us, with one single conversation, what would happen? And as I think being a cultural peacemaker, a relational peacemaker can be a bit overwhelming, if you're anything like me, just thinking about these avenues can lead to so many more questions than answers. But as we take a walk down Avenue 3, I want to get personal, I want to get tangible, I want to go introspective and look at learning to be a personal peacemaker in our own neighborhood. Because the way I see it, peace has to begin inside of me. Peace has to begin inside of you. It has to begin inside of us before it can actually happen. And we see Jesus talk about that a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount as well. In Matthew 5, 38, if you want to flip there. So Matthew 5, 38 says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to use you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Through the words of Jesus, we see what it can look like to embody the identity of being a peacemaker, and that it means sometimes you have to go against the grain of what is expected or normal. In the Roman world that Jesus was speaking to, these four or five verses would have been absolutely scandalous and shocking. To be slapped on the other cheek required intentionality. It meant that someone who hit you, you would then offer them your other cheek, or if they really wanted to hit you, they would have to slap you backhanded. It took thought and intentionality. If you gave someone your coat, it implied that you were giving them more than they were entitled to or asking for, because back then you had more than one shirt, but only one coat. So they would have known that what you were doing was above and beyond. A 
At the same time as we look at the idea of go one mile, or carry, go one mile, but go with them two. In the first century, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, could literally order any Roman citizen to carry their belongings, their pack, for one mile. But the moment you got to one mile, you didn't have to go a step further. So Jesus is telling them, go above and beyond. Go two miles instead. Be shocking. Show him favor and grace. In the same way that I think my father was able to show that minister favor and grace by stepping into a difficult and complex situation. In the same way we have people around us, we need to step into those conversations as well. Jesus is illustrating to his disciples in this context that peacemaking starts inside of us. And as it starts inside of us, it can flow out of us. And we are able to go against the grain, be countercultural. Peacemaking must start in us before it can flow out of us. Peacemaking has to start in us before it can flow out of us. And as I say this, I know that being a follower of Jesus is not always easy. Being a follower of Jesus is not always fun. Being a follower of Jesus, I think, means living in the tension. It means living in the tension of this world and Jesus' values. It means living in the tension between peace and conflict. And I think of a story from Jesus that I think perfectly illustrates this and shows us a little bit of the tension. In John 18, we see our two main characters in this story, Peter and Jesus. And it's the night that Jesus is about to be handed over to be crucified. So as you can imagine, there's probably all sorts of conflict and tension going on with the disciples as they're wondering what is about to happen. And finally, guards come to arrest Jesus. And in the middle of this, Peter unsheaths his sword, winds up cutting off a guard's ear. I don't know if that was great aim or really poor aim, but he cuts off the guy's ear. Jesus then picks it back up and heals the guard. And as he does that, he tells Peter to put away your sword. Can you imagine the tension in that moment? What do you mean, Jesus? I'm just supposed to let you go willingly? What do you mean I'm not supposed to fight for you? What is it you want me to do for you if it's not to fight back? This is the tension. And I think this is the same tension that you and I live in today. There is a tension in learning what it means to follow Jesus. What might Jesus be asking you to put away today? He asked, he asked Peter to put away his sword. What might Jesus be asking you to put away today? See, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. In Matthew 20, 28, he tells us that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Shouldn't we as disciples do the same? In 1 Peter 1, we find out that Jesus poured out his precious blood for our sake. Shouldn't a disciple be willing to do the same? You and I may never carry a badge or wear a uniform, but if we're a follower of Jesus, we carry something else. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells us this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What are we as disciples who are living out the reality and calling of the Beatitudes supposed to be carrying? It is our cross. We pick up our cross 
and follow Jesus. And in the middle of this, we take off and put down our will, our opinions, our views, our purposes, our desires, our wants, and our life. And we take on the posture of our Lord, our King, our Savior, and our God. And we carry our cross. Jesus' cross, the life that he lived while on earth. This is a call to allow Jesus to be at work in our life, in our hearts, by creating peace in us so that we can become equipped to partner in God's peace in the world. Peace must be in us before we can be agents of peace. Following in the footsteps of Jesus is what we want to do in all three of these avenues that we have talked about learning to be a peacemaker in, culturally, relationally, and personally. And as we take a walk on these avenues, we are taking a walk in the areas, I think, that make up our neighborhoods, the places we find out, we find ourselves living out our everyday life. When we are living out being a peacemaker in these three avenues, we will then be agents of peace in our neighborhood. And where I want to close for us is on the last half of the Beatitude. So the first half we've talked about, blessed are the peacemakers. The second half that we haven't talked about is for they shall be called children of God. For they shall be children of God. And Peter himself throughout scripture, throughout our narrative of the Bible, goes on a fantastic and wonderful and crazy journey. And he particularly goes on a crazy journey in Acts chapter 10. And I think this gives us a practical example of what it means and what it looks like to live out this beatitude. In Acts chapter 10, he meets a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is in a town in a city called Caesarea. If you don't know anything about Caesarea, I picture it a lot like the modern-day equivalent of San Diego, California. So it was home to the Navy, it was home to soldiers and military, and it was a culturally significant and happening place. This is where Peter meets Cornelius. And as he meets Cornelius, he finds out that Cornelius is a centurion in the Italian cohort. Cornelius himself is a soldier. As he goes a little bit deeper in conversation with Cornelius, he discovers that Cornelius himself is also a Gentile who worships and fears God. So he is a non-Jew. He is like you and me. He's not Jewish, but in the first century, he loved and wanted to figure out what following God meant. And Peter leaves that conversation, and he goes on a little bit further, and he has an experience and a vision that I'm sure he would never forget. He sees a vision of a sheet falling down, and when the sheet falls down, he finally comes to the end in realization that the point of this vision, the point of the story that he is on, is that it doesn't matter who or where you are, God does not care about anything other than that everybody is welcomed into the life of God's people. Whether they are a Jew or a non-Jew, all God wants to see is people come to him. And Peter will tell us this in Acts 10, verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And what I think is so interesting about this narrative in Acts 10, if we actually dove into it, is that nowhere in this story, in this narrative, does Peter tell Cornelius that he has to quit his job, stop being a soldier, and find a new profession. Nowhere in this does that happen. All Peter tells Cornelius is that he wants to lead him to a spiritual peace. Peter, above all else, wanted Cornelius to encounter Jesus. Peter wanted Cornelius to encounter the living, active, breathing, powerful God that I hope many of us in here have encountered. And Peter isn't the only one who tells us this. Paul also tells us this in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And when we live out these three avenues of cultural, relational, and personal peacemaking, we get to be agents of peace in our neighborhood no matter where we find ourselves. And I can't make peace because Jonathan is anything special or wonderful or because I happen to be a pastor on staff at a great church. I can only make peace because I have the powerful living God living inside of me. And as I tap into that, I can make peace as I go about my daily life. And so I think when you go to work at Boeing building a plane, you go as one looking to bring the peace of Jesus. If you work in a high rise in downtown Seattle, you get to display the peace of Jesus in your office. If you work as a server at a restaurant, you get to display the peace of Jesus to that couple on a date at your table. If you're a student, you get to display the peace of Jesus even while you're taking a midterm for organic chemistry. As we think about being peacemakers, it has to start in our neighborhoods. It has to start right next door, where we live, where we work with those who are closest to us. And I think that in doing this, we see that we shall be called children of God, but also as we live out being a peacemaker, it is my hope and my dream that others will be able to be called children of God as well. And so today, for our response, for our time together, hopefully you were handed one of these cards that says, I can see. And if you look around on the side of the room, you can see where we've had some of the cards from previous weeks, and you guys have taped them up on the walls. And we're going to do that again today as a community. And as we respond, I just wonder, where can you see it? Where can you see the peace of God the peace of Jesus on display. Maybe you have a story like my father and the minister where he was able to bring peace to a complicated and difficult situation. But where can you actively see peace? Or maybe, where do you hope to see peace? Is there a neighbor? Is there somebody you want to see peace happen in their life? At this point, I'll pray for us <clears throat> as we respond. And don't forget, as you're putting up your cards, if you want prayer, we will have prayer people on the sides of the rooms for you as well. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we get to be with you, worship you, and that we get to think about what it means to bring peace. We thank you that you made peace for us and that ultimately we get to bring peace to others. Be with us in our time today as we close. Amen.